exactly with our order, we'll notice that uh, we're skipping over a passage. Um, so I, it's all about the Lord's Supper, and I just couldn't uh, preach all about the Lord's Supper and then not celebrate the Lord's Supper. It just was too unfitting. Uh, this one happens to start into uh, the longest treatment that we have in the New Testament on spiritual gifts. Just celebrated Thanksgiving. Uh, it's a good time to talk about gifts. And so here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll look at just the first part of that chapter, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Hear the reading of God's word. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, as we sung earlier, we pray that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, that you would by him illumine your word to not just our minds but our hearts, that we would be affected by it, Lord, that you would show us, show us the truth about ourselves and about you, and that you would draw us, Lord, to yourself, to a deeper love and affection and worship. Please help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are a few topics in modern Christendom that have garnered more fervent uh, debate, seemingly intractable division, and prompted more questions than spiritual gifts. You've probably um, gotten into conversations about spiritual gifts. And it wasn't all that different in the early church. It's not without reason that we find um, extensive, careful explanations of how we're supposed to think about spiritual gifts in both in First Peter, Romans, Ephesians, and First Corinthians. On the one hand, this tells us about their importance, but on the other, that since the earliest days of the church, spiritual gifts have suffered from confusion and abuse. And that's something of what we find Paul addressing in Corinth. They've fallen into what seems to be a classic stratification game. It's where we try to ascertain who's more, who's less, who's better, who's worse than anybody else in the church. 
It's a game we've all played for, for good and ill, but in this case, the, the subject matter is spirituality. They're trying to discern who's the most spiritual or, or what makes the most vibrant, enthusiastic, favored worship. Again, it's not necessarily a bad question. We should all have a hunger to grow spiritually, to worship the Lord with all that we are. And to do so, we need to know what that looks like. But from our modern context, their answer of how would probably seem a little strange. You see, they seem to have located spirituality primarily, if not exclusively, in the presence, fervency, and frequency with which someone expresses the gift of tongues. And that's really why they've written Paul. They want Paul to confirm for them that they're right about their focus on tongues. And so Paul begins accordingly, or at least it it seems like it. He says in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, note the plural rather than the singular, likely a, a pointer to where Paul's headed, But even more notably here, he continues, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now that word uninformed, it's it's where we get our English word agnostic from. That's probably more familiar to you. It's, It's a label that many have taken up today to describe their uncertainty about spiritual things. The agnostic says, I'm not sure if Christianity is true, or I'm not sure that I can know for sure. And on the surface then, Paul's response seems fairly gentle, understanding. When you talk to agnostic, you want, you want to try to, to help them, to reassure them of, of what's true and what's not. You're a little unsure about your position. That's okay. Let me reassure you. But, you see, that's not how Paul's referred to, to knowledge things in the past with the Corinthians. Each time in chapters 3, 6, 8, and 10... It's to introduce subjects that they should already know and for which he now has grave concerns about their understanding. It means their agnosticism about the gift of tongues and necessarily spiritual gifts generally isn't innocent or inconsequential misunderstanding, but but it's, as the pattern points up, a sinful distortion of the truth with serious implications. And so what's the answer? Well, Paul begins with the source of the distortion, second, the point of correction, and third, the real source, expression, distribution, and purpose of spiritual gifts. And so let's look at these in turn. First, point one, the source of the distortion. Paul says, verse two, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. In short, the source of the distortion comes from their carrying their prior understanding of spirituality into Christianity. That's what Paul's bringing across with the reference to paganism and idolatry. It's how they used to worship. It's to accent the influence of their prior religious activities. And that's um, something we probably don't understand very well, but we we need to in order to understand where Paul's going. And so... um, Here's an attempt at that. As far as our world is anti-religious and anti-spiritual, theirs is hyper-religious and hyper-spiritual. We have a business on every corner. They have a temple on every corner. We have a fireplace in every house. They have uh, an altar in every house. 
And not, not just to a, a single God, but a whole um, assortment of deities. It's why when we look at um, ancient Greek and Roman mythology, we find a pantheon of gods. As strange as it might sound to our more secular sensibilities, the way you navigated life in the ancient world was through a, a business relationship with the gods. So for instance, if you needed love, you went and you worshipped the god of love. And if you then found love, you went and you offered thanks to the God of love. Likewise, if you needed rain for your crops, then you made an offering to the God of rain. It's why um, uh, there's, uh, uh, Zeus and uh, the God Baal are so important in ancient Near Eastern religion. Likewise, if you needed sun or victory in battle or safety on the seas, you went to that particular God. For whatever you needed, there was a God. And the way you got what you needed was by giving worship to that God. To put it in another way, the diversity of the gifts or needs was informed by the diversity of the givers or gods. But the manner of ancient worship was also, um, would, have, would have appeared, I, I think, bizarre to most of us. One commentator on the ancient Near Eastern context notes the prevalence of fantastical, um, even magical worship practices. It would have been commonplace to see worshipers in a kind of spiritually induced trance, uttering odd incantations, casting spells, claiming visions, acting out as if possessed in highly visible and dramatic ways. There's evidence for this in both the Old and New Testaments. Israel's bumping up against this and falling into it in, in, a, in a number of places. We're told that Saul consulted the witch of Endor, Second Kings ascribes witchcraft to Jezebel. Daniel in Babylon was said to have lived among the magicians. We're told in Acts of apostolic confrontations with Simon the Magus, the, the magician, Elimus the sorcerer, and the seven sons of Sceva, all magicians. And so what, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that normal ancient pagan spirituality was both particular to the particular God's gifting and transactional. It was really like a business relationship with the gods. If you needed something, you went to the God of that thing. You paid your dues and you got that thing. If you needed something else, well then you went to the, the, the God of that something else. And in that sense, pagan religion, if you think about that, just like a business relationship, was, was largely self-driven and self-serving. Why do you go to the store? Because you need something from the store. But it's also normal for the spiritual to be identified by the intensity of the high drama worship practice. And in that sense, it was self-exalting. As a result, paganism found the measure of a person's spirituality, God's favor to them, and their favor to the God in the relative presence of both the deity's gift and the visible fervency of their worship. And that's what Paul was so alarmed to hear about and find in Corinth. It seems like the Christian gift of tongues had become the way to carry their former spirituality into the new. It's as if the Holy Spirit had become the God of tongues. And they were thus locating their favor with them in the relative degree of their spirituality in the fervency and frequency with which they expressed that gift. 
I just want you to imagine for a minute what, what that must have been like for a Corinthian worship service. With such an overly enthusiastic infatuation with the gift of tongues, it caused their worship services to descend into a fairly chaotic spiritual competition of sorts. That really, from the outside of it, on the surface of it, looked very similar to the pagan spirituality that they had come out of. And so Paul reminds them quite immediately, verse 2, that the relationship between the old and the new is not transferable. Not whatsoever. That's the point. He says, when you were pagans, you were led astray by, note the important nuance, mute idols. It's to say, however it is that the Spirit leads or speaks, it's not going to be the same as the old because the idols that you worshipped before were mute. They couldn't speak. They couldn't lead. They couldn't inspire. They couldn't give or anything. And you know that. They led you astray. And that's the same point with the trailer comment. However you were led. Whether it was the world, the flesh, or the devil, I don't know, but it was for sure. For absolute sure, beyond any hint of agnosticism, not the man-made hunk of junk idol or the Lord who actually speaks. And therefore, Corinthians, you can't look back there to understand Christian spirituality. The two are utterly non-transferable spiritual experiences. And so what's the answer? How do we recognize genuine Christian spirituality? Point to the point of correction. Paul says, verse 3, Therefore, I want you to understand, that's the, the, the contrast with uninformed, okay? This is what he wants them to know, the correction to the agnosticism, that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, before we even get into exactly what this actually means, we have to consider um, what, it, what it doesn't mean. This is a verse that sadly has uh, been troublesome and confusing for later readers. You see, just saying Jesus is Lord, it seems too easy, doesn't it? Is that all that needs to come out of my mouth to prove I'm a Christian? Or if, if I get someone to say that, are they then a Christian? Uh, it would change our whole approach to evangelism, wouldn't it? I mean, hey, I've got this card. Read this card out loud. Bam! Whammo, a Christian is born, right? A whole lot easier. But on a related note, were the Corinthians actually saying Jesus is cursed in their worship services? And were others then, and we to understand that they were encouraging them in this, or, or even going so far as to credit it to the Holy Spirit of the Christian God. To put it another way, were, were they that far confused? Well, I hope, hopefully the answer is an intuitive no. You see, the key to what, what Paul is actually getting at is not in the contrast within the verse itself, but with the contrast uh, with its context. His reference to Jesus is accursed, this phrase, is not so much a reference to what they were saying in church, but to what they had been saying in pagan temples and were perhaps now saying 
though less explicitly by their importing pagan spirituality into the church. But there's something else we should realize too. See, neither of these phrases were simple word constructions. But as multiple commentators have noted, emblematic. The phrase, Jesus is accursed, followed a standard curse formula. It's not just words, but it's, it's meaning something. Similarly, the phrase, Jesus is Lord, was a normal confession or vow formula. It's, it's what the early church would frequently use for new converts for them to confess their faith. Not just to say, do you know how to say these words? But their faith. It was representative of their, their whole life for Jesus. And that means Paul isn't spelling out a, a narrow definition of the Spirit's vocabulary, but a broadly framed trajectory. That's the big picture correction to the distortion. It's as Gordon Fee has noted, it's not in the presence of the gift per se, such as speaking in tongues, that is the evidence of the Spirit, but what the gift says about Christ. Does it say Jesus is accursed or Jesus is Lord? And yet that still doesn't quite answer the presenting issue. For the Corinthians, if that's the case, what gift do we need to do that? And if someone doesn't have it, then, then what does that say about them? Or if they don't have it to the same extent, what does that say about them? And so point three, the source, expression, distribution, and purpose of the gifts. Paul says, firstly, verse four through six, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now that's a beautiful statement, right? I mean, the, the diversity, the simplicity, it solves the sort of pinnacle philosophical conundrum of all times. How do, you, how do you reconcile simplicity with diversity? Well, it's right here. But it's also loud and clear, there isn't just one gift, not only tongues, but a genuine plethora of variety. That's the word that Paul is careful to keep repeating again and again and again. There's a variety of gifts and variety of services and variety of activities. It's like a hammer, but it's not the only hammer. You see, from their former frame, the only explanation for this kind of variety was a corresponding variety of gods. And so Paul is also careful to hammer the brute singularity of the source. This variety is not from different or many gods, but the same one God. It's the same Spirit, same Lord, same God. In distinction from everything they have known before, the one triune Christian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the sole empowering source of all spiritual gifts. And he adds, in everyone. And it's that last piece, the everyone, that he wants them to register as he continues. He says, verse 7 and following, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, and so on. 
And all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, unfortunately, these verses too have proven challenging for later readers, but, but mostly just because we get ahead of ourselves. I mean, when we think, well, if it's not tongues, just like the Corinthians, well, well then what is it? If there's variety, that's fine, but, but what's my gift? I, I want to pick it out. We feel obliged to find ourselves in this little list. But as we, as we try, and you can try, the, the task quickly proves challenging. For one, we wonder, are these nine really the extent of the hammering variety that Paul was talking about? Further, as we, as we try to parse these things, like, what exactly is this? It's not so easy. For instance, what's the difference between an utterance of knowledge and an utterance of wisdom. Don't those overlap someplace? I mean, I mean maybe there's a lean, but, or, or what about healing and other miracles? Is healing not a miracle? And, and that's not even to mention the listing faith. Into one, faith. Faith is a gift, and we know that, but, but are we to understand that there are Christians that don't have the gift of faith? And yet further still, this isn't the only list in the New Testament. There, there's another in this very chapter, and there's others besides, and not a single one is exactly the same. And so why? Well, because that's not what Paul's point is. He's not giving us a comprehensive catalog of spiritual gifts or even a sampling so that we can try to develop a set of categories. In other words, he's not challenging us to find ourselves here. But he's explaining that the distribution of the variety of spiritual gifts is comprehensive. It's to everybody. It's individual. And it's all from that one same empowering spirit. That's where the force of the argument falls. Again, it's like a hammer. To one is given this from the same spirit. And to another, that from the same spirit. And to another, something else from the same one spirit. And that means as we consider the makeup of the church, we don't have some people with spiritual gifts and others without. But the one Holy Spirit has individually apportioned gifts to each and every Christian. And that so that we might all, each and every, in the power of the Holy Spirit, put them to use for the common good, which is the building up of the body of Christ unto the good, glorious confession that Christ is Lord. That's what Paul wants the Corinthians to know, to, be not, to, to not be uninformed about spiritual gifts, plural. It's not about the presence, fervency, and frequency of your speaking in tongues or another particular gift, nor about where everyone fits in the spiritual hierarchy. But each and every, you individually before the Lord, embracing and putting what the Holy Spirit has apportioned to you to work in the service of his people for the glory of God. And so instead of their former spirituality that was driven by self to serve self, to exalt self, true Christian spirituality is driven by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, to serve others in order that we all might exalt Christ in that not only with our mouth, but with every manner of our gifts, services, and activities. Amen? And so what does this mean for us? 
Well, I ask you to think about what, what do your gifts, services, and activities say about the Lord? This is where we need to grow in thinking about spiritual gifts. Like the Corinthians and our agnosticism about spiritual gifts, we too have distorted and oftentimes handicapped the Spirit's work in the church. Perhaps not in exactly the same way as the Corinthians. I wouldn't describe uh, most Reformed folks as having an overly enthusiastic infatuation with the gift of tongues. Perhaps there are some exceptions in the audience today. Um, but we do tend to pigeonhole ourselves and others into pretty, a pretty narrow list of respectable gifts. So instead of tongues, we look for the presence, fervency, and frequency of preaching, teaching, praying, tithing, and devotions. And maybe there's a couple others we could add there, but, but that's about it. And as a result, we sometimes struggle with the question about how a woman or a child or a poor person or an elderly person or a man that, that doesn't show quite as much enthusiasm or, or fervency or frequency with such gifts can contribute to the church. But Paul's corrective takes us both in a different and much broader direction. Again, it's not about the presence, fervency, or frequency of this gift or that, but really what our whole life, public and private, respectable and seemingly inconsequential, says about the Lord. It's a concept that I think uh, the OPC study report on spiritual gifts captures quite well. This is what it says. Some gifts obviously involve distinctive endowment beyond the natural capacities of the recipient. For example, revelatory gifts. There you could think of the Holy Spirit's inspiring gifts, uh, books of the Bible to be written. Yet control and power of God's grace, sorry, yet, yet Paul's teaching is that any capacity of the believer brought under the control and power of God's grace and functioning in his service is a charisma or spiritual gift. Let me read that again. Any capacity of the believer brought under the control and power of God's grace and functioning in his service is a charisma or spiritual gift. And so it goes on. Biblically speaking, charismatic or spiritual giftedness and Christian are synonymous. And that's what we need to take away from here. Spiritual gifting isn't just about a narrow list of haves and have-nots, but the whole breadth of the Holy Spirit's progressive work in each and every Christian to make us alive to Christ and thereby confess Him as Lord with our whole life. To put it more simply, spiritual gifting is the empowering work of the Holy Spirit to both make Christians and make Christians live like Christians. And so again, to ask you to think about how are you doing? What is your life, your whole life? What, it, what does it say about Christ? That's the real spiritual gifts question we should be asking and the answer to the question of who is the most spiritual? What kinds of words come out of your mouth or thoughts race through your minds? Are they useful, useful for building up or tearing down? What kinds of work or leisure do your hands find to do? Are you contributing to the common good or you not? It's the kind of question that makes you um, look at yourself honestly in the mirror like Paul and say, wretch am I, wretch am I. 
And, and I'm the chief of sinners. It, it does not ever prompt us to pride, but increased humility. We all confess neither like we could or should and so much worse than we should or could. We are selfish with ourselves. We don't love the Lord or his people like we ought. And all too often, because at a very basic level, we are still living out of the old man and for the old man, which is us. We win. It's all about us. It's the, it's the conversation I have with my kids all the time. So does the world revolve around you? Okay. And it's starting to stick. Amazing transition there. We're primarily self-driven, self-serving, self-exalting people. Just like the Corinthians. There are times when our gifts, services, and activities proclaim Christ, but there are very many times they also say Christ isn't here. Christ, I'm not letting you be here. Your lordship has no place here. Christ is accursed here. And so what do we do? There's some sweet good news here on that front. You see, despite the fact that all of our spiritual problems come from us, it's all about us. Paul doesn't say according to the Corinthians' former spirituality or our own American spirituality, well then try harder, dig deeper, do more. But verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And so the answer for our spiritual problems is actually found outside of us. It's in our turning back to the Lord who gives us the Spirit. That's the one who we need to turn to in the weakness and the waywardness of our spirit because it's His Spirit who applies all the work that the Father has promised and the Son has accomplished. It's His Spirit who seals us to the Son in whom there is life everlasting. It's His Spirit who works that beautiful transformation of all our gifts, services, and activities, and even the root desires of our hearts, our whole life, everything, all that you are, all mind, body, strength, heart, into what says more and more, Christ is Lord. It's His Spirit who enables us to say, I'm a sinner, but I'm saved in Christ. I'm, I was lost, but I am found in Christ. I was dead, but now in Christ I live. And it's by His Spirit that Christ lives in you. And so praise be to God for that gift of gifts that gives us all gifts, His Holy Spirit. May He live in each of us more and more so that Christ may live in us more and more. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, we are weak and we confess we are not what we ought. We are self-driven strivers after self. That's not of you, Lord. It is not of the Holy Spirit. Help us to see that, Lord. Give us that sweet experience of guilt for that. Conviction, Holy Spirit-inspired conviction. And also by the Holy Spirit, would you take us back to Christ and renew a right spirit in us. Make us alive to Christ, to love Christ and to thrive in Christ. May that be the joy of our heart, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit 
that wonderful, awesome gift, great wonder of gifts, and make us to say more and more with all that we are, Lord, that Christ is Lord. May we be a people more and more who exalt Christ in everything we say and do and are. Please help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.